open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. One of the most valuable aspects of ophthalmology is the perpetual opportunity to gain new perspectives on practice, on surgery, on technology, on scientific theories, and so on. For this reason, most of us in the field enjoy being lifelong learners. One such person who never ceases to seek and share new perspectives is Dr. George Waring IV. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, George shares with us his recent experience changing his own vantage point and a move from academics to private practice. He also describes his views on the importance of thinking beyond Snell and acuity and his outlook on in vivo IOL modification. Here's George. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and I'm happy to welcome back to the program Dr. George Waring. So, George, thank you so much for being willing to come and uh, share a little bit more of your story and give us some more of your opinions. Thanks, Gary. It's always great to be here. So, George, I just want to know a little bit about the big news in your life. I recently heard that you had a change in your practice situation, which is always exciting and fun and stressful and sometimes terrifying. And so, you know, just walk us through that a little bit. Tell us about your new practice and maybe a little bit about what went into your decision-making process of saying, hey, I think I want to do something different. Gary, we recently founded a private practice, which we're just absolutely thrilled about. So we just finished our first month and things are going really well. We're very thankful. We have transitioned out of a academic setting where we've been over the last six years. Mm -hmm. And it's really been a very healthy transition, very positive and, and mutually supportive, which is, I think, so important when you do have an opportunity for a transition of this sort. And so we still work with the university in that uh, my wife still runs the division of cornea and refractive surgery there. Okay. And so that is, it's just a, a real wonderful way to actually expand the, the breadth and depth of what we do. So we had two opportunities that really went into this decision-making. Number one, my father, he, when he passed a few years ago, it was an impetus for me to do something in a way to honor him and myself because this is something that he had always encouraged me to do. And we had hoped to do it together at some point in our lives. So that was the first real aha moment for this. Right. The second was our center. We had an opportunity where the center became available. And it was one of these things where it was always a dream but trying to make a dream like this a reality is not always easy until you have the vision and the aha moments coincide and that's when you know to move forward and that's exactly what we did so we did all of our due diligence really leaned on our friends and colleagues of which you know, I'm just forever indebted to to understand what it takes to start a private practice and it the journey has been wonderful it's been uh, remarkable and and we definitely could not have done it without our our, our friends and colleagues support 
So it sounds like it was sort of fulfilling a, a vision, a dream, a legacy perhaps, but it's also right place, right time. So trying to capture the momentum of, a, of the right opportunity. Is that fair? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly it. And, and these things, you know, they're, they're real, there's real risk involved. There mm-hmm. are real undertakings. There's a lot of change. But the mantra is sometimes the harder the task seems, the more rewarding it's going to be. And, and, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot of our, our uh, heroes and mentors like Jeff Tabin is really sort of a perfect example of that. You know, the crazier the mountain that you can climb, the more rewarding it's going to be when you get to the top. Yeah. And so this absolutely applies in terms of uh, a challenge that has just been so fulfilling and rewarding, even a short period of time. It's just, it's wonderful to see these things actually become a reality when it's been a dream for so long. That's right. You know, I, I think about this, maybe it's a little too philosophical, but I think about, you know, we're built for adventure, I feel like. You know, we're built to take risks, calculated risks, and life is most exciting sometimes when you're, when you're doing that, when you're engaged, you're fully engaged. You know, the middle of the road is always going to be there. If this doesn't work out or another adventure doesn't work out, the safe path will always represent itself. Um, as long as you're taking appropriate you know, precautions with, with what you're doing. But uh, I really want to say, you know, great job for being willing to step outside of your comfort zone, being willing to fulfill something that's been a vision and a dream for you. And uh, I wish you nothing but, the, you know, full success and anything I can do to help and others. You know, we're just cheering for you to uh, make this a fantastic practice, and we know you're going to be successful. Thank you. So let's move on to a couple of topics that I know you're really passionate about, and I share some passion in these areas. Um, the first one is really how we talk about vision. And George, we've talked about this at a number of meetings, and we've talked about Snell and Acuity being so outdated, especially when we are using so many advanced tools to express astigmatism, um, not only anterior, but posterior, higher order aberrations, wavefront, etc., using all these amazing tools, and yet we're still expressing vision in terms of Snell and Acuity. Walk me through what you think we need to do if there is a, a way or a vision that you have. What are we missing with Snell and Acuity, and how can we tell that story a little bit better to patients so we can tell them, here is what you're seeing, not just at 20 feet or at infinity, but here are the ways that you see in various conditions, near, far, intermediate, light, dark, etc. What, what are we missing right now in terms of the way we express vision? Well, Gary, you said it well. Snelling Acuity has served an important purpose in what we do, and it sounds so obvious. It's we take it for granted that it's been around since the mid 1800s. Right. And when we think about how advanced we are optically, with everything that we do, why wouldn't that translate directly into how we measure vision? And we all know that there's more to vision than arc seconds. It's really about quality and. Historically, contrast sensitivity actually really has been the best measure of quality of vision. And some of us would argue that that's more important in a way than Snellen acuity. Right. And, but it's not sometimes easy to perform things like contrast. And even contrast is, 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 is fraught with issues. And so we have access to advanced diagnostics, which truly tell us what the patient is seeing on the retinal plane. For example, a double-pass wavefront device by Visiometrics, the HD analyzer, is a wonderful example of something like this, where it actually subtracts the light scatter from a wavefront 
and can show it on the retina. So not only can you see what the patient's seeing, you can show the patient what they're seeing in terms of quality of vision. Right. And over the years, we've looked into this carefully and we've amassed a library of just about every visual condition we can imagine. And we've developed a system where we can now recognize patterns just based on the light that falls on the retina, we can make the diagnosis. Wow. Much like topography recognition. Interesting. And so uh, we now have a series of papers and, and review and uh, the peer-reviewed uh, literature that now are, are, are showing these different disease, uh, disease states and how we can correlate and understand these. Uh, most recently, we just had published uh, a grading uh, correlation in keratoconus and the light that falls on the retina. And it turns out that it actually correlates well with the traditional severity scales. We've currently in review, but I, we feel would be an important contribution to literature in terms of the dysfunctional lens syndrome and a prospective analysis understanding how we can improve image quality with dysfunctional lens replacement or refractive lens exchange in ways that we cannot do in patients that present for LASIK, for example. And this has helped us now understand how to stage the dysfunctional lens syndrome to not only make appropriate surgical decisions, but also to educate our patients better. And that's just really important. And you know, I just really would encourage all the listeners to start thinking beyond Snellen and really start paying attention to image quality because what we're finding is with early intervention with things like YAG capsulotomy, for example, we can really improve image quality. And we have a paper just currently uh, submitted showing that even with early YAG capsulotomy, that we can improve image quality in a statistically significant manner in a prospective study. Now, quick question. Was that with monofocal patients, yes. multifocal patients, yeah. or both? We've looked at both. Okay. And the, the, the device does have some limitations with the older diffractive optics, but okay. it's really interesting because with some of the newer generation lens designs, it actually really does give you very valuable information. So we look at, we've looked at most of these lens styles in these analyses, but uh, the monofocal implants tend to give you the most um, pure information in right, a way, measurable. but we show improvement with both. That's incredible. So one thing I'm sort of thinking about is when I'm counseling patients about refractive options for cataract surgery, for example, um, that patient, you know, we're sort of saying, well, do you want to see at distance? Do you want to see up close? Do you want to see intermediate? And it very quickly becomes this quagmire of a conversation where we're really not showing the patient. We're, we're talking in terms that they don't really understand. And I really feel like we need a visual, a, a graphic that's much easier to say, all right, when you're 20 years old, this is the quantity of vision that you have. And showing that you can accommodate, for example, up to you know a couple inches away from your, from your eye and all the way out to infinity, showing you know, up to 20, 12 and a half. And you sort of have this area under the curve, for example. And then by the time you reach 45 or 50, you're presbyopic, you know, in some in some ways, you've lost half of your vision. Now, we don't think about presbyopia that way, but in reality, you have lost, in terms of area under the curve, from, you know, zero centimeters to infinity, you are losing about half of what you had. And so I feel like there, there must be tools and ways for us to show patients wherever they, wherever they are on that scale to show them you know, this is where you, where a perfect eye would be at age 18 or 20. 
this is where you are, and then here are these lens options and show them the amount of vision, the quantity and quality, even under different lighting conditions, that, that these lenses would provide for them. So they can kind of compare a normal young eye to what these lenses would, would restore potentially. And that I feel like might be a better way to have a conversation than just saying, well, do you want the standard lens or do you want to see near and distance? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Gary, you and I have had these discussions, uh, very thoughtful discussions in the past, and I just really love the way that you think about these. And you've got you've you've had some just really fabulous ideas about how we can put together really a, a, a true vision score. Right. And, and the importance of this is that of capturing what we're calling functional vision. Right. It's functional vision, which Snellen really doesn't tell you anything about. And so when we look at this in a univariate manner, that's probably the right way to do it. So I really think you're onto something with this, and, and we look forward to hopefully working with you to develop some projects where we can actually take these models, simplify them, make them kind of a, a universal language, easy to apply, and, and, and establish some real value on where we can help people understand what their opportunities are and really what their limitations are right. on things that we've always taken for granted, like loss of accommodation, right. which as an uh, 0.05 dysfunctional lens patient myself, meaning I'm an incipient presbyope, right. and it stinks. You know, there's, there's real, real quality of life issues that I'm dealing with, and that's not, you know, it's not until you start dealing with it that it becomes you a realize this is a real thing. <laughs> right. And right. so anyways, I, you know, I applaud your, your vision and your efforts to, to, to do this. And I, I do think it's something that we should continue to, to forge ahead on. Yeah, I think, I, I think you're right. And we need, we need sort of, I think, a head of steam or some momentum from either societies. It's too big of a project for, for a couple people to probably do on their own. This would re- probably require societies to get together and talk about new um, common ways of expressing vision. But I do think it's time uh, that we put, the, put it out there and say, let's start the conversation of making a new language for expressing vision. Well, it, it, these things can, we can, it can always start with an editorial in the peer-reviewed literature. And furthermore, it can always start with a, thought, a thoughtful analysis and proposal that can also be submitted to the peer-reviewed literature right. as well. Right. So a, a great example is uh, Dan Reinstein's contribution to the literature on how we standardize reporting in the peer-reviewed literature on intraocular lens implants and outcomes. The same contribution was made a number of years ago by my father and, and others on right. understanding how we should be reporting corneal refractive outcomes in a standardized reporting. So I could see foresee an opportunity where we do this for uh, understanding uh, and, and proper reporting for, for visual outcomes and just in terms of not so much necessarily from an interventional standpoint, but more in terms of uh, clinical use and everyday conversation. Yeah. So let's move the conversation from that conversation with patients before surgery to dealing with patients after surgery who may not have achieved the outcome that they want. You know, this happens probably more often than we even realize, but it happens enough that we know it's a problem. Uh, We would love to eliminate that. But at this point, we don't have the magic wand. We have, you know, laser refractive surgery. We have exchanges, piggyback IOLs. 
we're all looking for that solution that's the easy button where Mrs. Jones comes in and she's, you know, plus one and has, you know, maybe a diopter, a sill as well, and you're trying to figure out what to do, and you can basically modify her outcome in a non-invasive way. And I know you've been working with Perfect Lens on what seems to me to be a very compelling new technology, and I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit and talk to us about why you are, are investing your time and energy at making this idea sort of come to fruition. Perfect Lens is a is a is a really a, a disruptive technology that is one of the most exciting things that that we've worked on in, in our career that we've had an opportunity to work on, and we consider ourselves very fortunate to be involved. This is a, a concept that's been around for a number of years and through a few iterations uh, in terms of the core the core concept of refractive index shape changing. And this really uses the idea of a femtosecond laser and a concept called phase wrapping, which allows, phase wrapping allows you to take a lot of information and put it into a small space. And this is based on Fresnel optics. So we can effectively create large refractive changes within a very small physical three-dimensional space. Well, an intraocular lens implant turns out to be a wonderful space to do that in. And you can apply a femtosecond laser to an acrylic lens and actually with a very high degree of reproducibility, essentially customize or affect just about any optical circumstance that we can think of. And so, for example, this is something that we can do in vivo and you can do it again, and you can do it again. And you can create changes, you can undo changes, you can modify and customize different circumstances uh, for just about any optical circumstance we can think of, whether this is defocus change, sphere, cylinder, you know, tericity, whether this is adding multifocality, diffractive optics, refractive optics, whether it's removing multifocality, whether it's changing asphericity, whether it's creating a hyperprolate or extended depth of focus profile. Right. You can pretty much do, do it all. And the neat thing is you can do it simultaneous and you can undo it if right. you don't like it or customize it. Right. And we've learned a lot about optics through this project. Sounds a little obvious, but there are things that I think we a lot of us have taken for granted uh, those of us that enjoy optics and uh, as surgeons, like yourself, that that we didn't appreciate before we started working on this project. Um, you know, there's there's the there's all the obvious things about how this really could be a game-changing technology. But when you start to dig into the opportunities to customize multifocality, for example. Uh, at least myself, I always just thought of this in terms of ad power. Right. And you know, we always started with we started with the high ads, and then the trend has been to go to lower and lower um, ads. Well, it turns out that independent of the ad power is also the light, the far near differential of the light spit, and that's that's independent of the ad power. Interesting. So there, and traditionally, and this information is available on the boxes, we just never really paid attention to it. So the not only has the trend been to go away from high ad to moderate ad to low ads, but it's actually been to to give more and more light towards distance 
believe it or not, and less towards like near. distance. Right. It's a differential. Year. Okay. So you can, and, and with this technology, you can actually do both. So you can just even just leave the ad power the same and then customize just the light near differential of how much light for you've distributed for distance and near or intermediate. So it, it just, it's, it's, you all of a sudden you're taking a minimally invasive procedure, what it appears to be. So the animal studies have been done at Moran with very favorable outcomes. And we're now looking at our first in man studies and um, working on our protocols actually that we're helping with as we speak. So this is something that we really want to be paying attention to that really represents a whole new generation of treatments that is in, in vivo customization but this particular technology, if it works like we all hope it's going to work, and we keep being surprised because it keeps working, that we can now do this multiple times to get it just right. I mean, this, this seems like uh, pretty close to the holy grail in terms of a refractive tool that we would use for our cataract patients. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if, the way I've understood phase wrapping is basically you're changing the relative hydrophilicity of a hydrophobic lens, for example. And so some people have asked me the question when I've tried to explain phase wrapping and this technology, they've said, well, how does a lens change shape inside of an eye? How can you change a lens? Where does it go or what happens to it? That doesn't make sense. But it does make sense if you realize that all acrylics have a certain relative hydrophilicity or hydrophobicity. And if you're able to alter the refractive index by altering the amount of water, for example, that, that is absorbed by an acrylic, you can do whatever you want. And if you can increase and or decrease um, those parameters and use that in a, in a really smart way, um, you know, this could be a really, really exciting technology and very disruptive, I might add, to the IOL space because it really um, could disrupt the way we make lenses in the future. I mean, every lens may be a monofocal and every procedure may be standard and all the customization happens after surgery. Um, really kind of game-changing in terms of the way we even think about refractive cataract surgery. So we are all uh, very excited to follow the progress. And um, this is something that I'm, I've been you know, aware of back when, I think it was Aaron Scientific, uh, when they first were starting this, I went to a little meeting and I was like, is this, if this is real, this is really amazing. So I'm glad that you're working on this because we need a lot of smart minds to uh, help this project along. But uh, this is something that we're all really watching with, uh, with great interest. Well, we, we, we're, again, we're, we totally agree with you and we, remember those early discussions and thinking about this as a great science project but cautiously optimistic because it was so disruptive and what we've found is just kind of every milestone we just keep being surprised because it keeps working and it keeps working and it keeps working and so essentially in a nutshell you're creating a lens within a lens you're creating a refractive shape within a, within a, a lens so this is not disrupting the uh, the boundaries of the lens it's actually sitting within it and the phase wrapping process is really more of a modeling shape process that's 
that's independent of the refractive index shape changing. That is a, it's, an, it's really an optical modeling process that allows you to take a large amount of optical information and then put it into a small physical three-dimensional space through optical modeling. But totally agree with you. Really appreciate your interest in this, and and uh, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, George, I really appreciate you coming on and giving us a little update on what's exciting in your life and uh, the the shared passion we have for all things uh, refractive surgery. And uh, this is definitely not the last time you'll be on, so um, we will we will talk again very soon, my friend. Gary, we always appreciate the opportunity. It's so fun to get to do this with you, and, and thank you so much. Welcoming new perspectives and a willingness to see things from new angles is a challenge that clearly George has embraced. The opportunities afforded by this approach are multiple and we thank George for his knack for seeing things differently and for coming on to share some of those views with us today. That's all for Ophthalmology Off the Grid today. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Past episodes are available at itube.net slash podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.